Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to take a chance to say thank you to everyone who joined us at our Culture First Global events this year. Over 20,000 people from nearly every part of the world joined us at our three events. Now, if you weren't one of those people, then please do not worry. I have some great news for you. All of the sessions from the three events are now available for you to watch, re-watch, or share with others. Maybe you want to sit down and listen to the keynotes from people like Professor Ibram X. Kendi, Priya Parker, Adam Grant, or maybe Rachel Botsman. Or potentially, you want to learn from companies. We had people like Canva, McLaren, and the Major League Baseball all share how they put culture first. Head to cultureamp.com community where you can find the link to watch all of the sessions from the three events. All right, let's get started. Trust is a confident relationship with the unknown. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. How often have you heard one of these statements said at work? We need to build more trust. I have a really good gut feeling about them. I'm 100% sure about this. We need to be more transparent. I'm sure we've all either said one of these or at least heard one of these statements at some point throughout our working life. You might even be sitting there thinking, hang on, I swear someone said that today at work. On this episode of the Culture First podcast, we are going to rethink those statements and much, much more. My guest for this episode is Rachel Botsman. Rachel is a trust expert, author, and lecturer at Oxford University. She's passionate about teaching people how to think differently and challenge ideas around trust and humility. She's been recognized as one of the world's 30 most influential management thinkers, one of the top 10 most influential voices in the UK, and honored as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. If you've seen her TED Talks, well, you're going to be one of over 5 million people who've sat down and watched. In this episode, you'll also learn how Rachel handles parenting young children as a trust expert, how the pandemic has impacted her life as a public speaker, and Rachel's also the first ever guest who used the word corker. But you're going to have to listen all the way to the end to hear that. This is a conversation where we talked a lot about vulnerability, ego, and trust. And throughout this conversation, I did my best to be open about my own struggles with those subjects. I hope that you can learn and reflect on those subjects through my own stories, as well as your own. But don't worry, this isn't all serious business. This is an episode full of laughter and warmth, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. We begin this conversation with Rachel and I metaphorically walking around her garden in Oxford, England, where we talk about landscape architecture and how Jamie Oliver taught me how to cook. So today on the Culture First podcast, I'm joined by Rachel Botsman. Rachel, thanks so much for having this conversation with me. It's good to be here. So one of the questions I like to start with uh, to sort of learn a little bit more about the guest is a question about 
if we really knew them. So obviously, you know, people can watch your TED Talks, people can go online, they can read your newsletter, they can learn a little, a little bit about you. They might find information about like where you're physically located or topics of interest. But if I was to really know you, what would I know about you, Rachel? It's such a good opening question. I think people would know that I am an extreme introvert and that may surprise them because often people conflate sort of the energy and the confidence around public speaking. Um, But I like to spend an extraordinary amount of time alone. Um, And if I, if I don't get that, um, I actually can't function. It's where I get my energy from. So that's probably something that doesn't come through. A lot comes through on social media and and all my scribbles and everything I present is who I am, but there is this very deep introverted self that probably isn't reflected. Have you found the last 12 to 18 months, I guess, easier as an introvert or like considering that so much of like your world you know used to be like public speaking on stages how have you found that transition and has that level of introversion changed at all so I haven't I've really enjoyed being home and not traveling it's made me think very long and hard about a career that was very dependent on travel um I have deeply missed the energy and connection that you get with a live audience. And even though through, you know, sort of a lot of practice, I feel like I've got better at virtually connecting with people. Um, That has been difficult. But being still and being home has been very good for me. Um, it was challenging when the kids were home all the time because we were all in the same space. And mm. look, I'm very fortunate that we have a garden and, and live in Oxford, so there's lots of space around us. But I think that blurring of work, home, school, everything going on in the same boundary was incredibly difficult because I've always been someone that, you know, puts my head down, gets my work done, and then I come home and I'm mum, and we don't really talk much about it. So, you know, one way they've become a lot more interested in what I do, which is is lovely, and they ask all kinds of questions. So I don't think Mm. they struggled with it. I just struggled with um, those boundaries disappearing. I feel like we could do a whole episode on what's it like to, uh, to be like children of a, of a mother who is a trust expert and uh, growing <laughs> up in that household. But we're here to talk about the workplace. But before I switch gears into like what we do for work, one final question. Now, did your time at home during the pandemic get you any closer to your dream job of being a landscape architect? <laughs> I am. <laughs> um, because <laughs> most of, um, so my husband's, uh, he needs projects. He needs to be busy all the time. So um, he built a shed um, and he built an entire kitchen garden for me. Um, wow. And I spent an extraordinary amount of time. Um, my A lot of my home lessons were around gardening. So <laughs> science was in the greenhouse. Art was in the garden. Um, 
I think I even did maths out there, but uh, we're pretty much self-sufficient. Um, and then I had some big ambitious plans as to what I wanted to do with the garden. So um, put money away each week and now I'm making that dream happen. So it's uh, not doing landscaping and gardening for other people quite yet, but my own garden is becoming uh, what I always wanted it to be. Amazing. I couldn't let that question slide because I knew it was something that you've spoken about in the past. And I thought if there was ever a time that Rachel was going to get closer to being a landscape architect, it might have been over the last 12 to 18 months. So um, I've also got an amazing visual like this uh, outdoor kitchen. I, I, I taught myself how to cook by watching Jamie Oliver DVDs back in the day, which is myself. And he was always cooking in his back garden in, in England. So I've, I've got a beautiful visual of how that played out. Yeah, no, it's, we got five massive beds. And as my, my dad came around, he hadn't really seen the garden, what I'd done to it. And he said, Rachel, like, you have enough potatoes for all of Oxford because I turned the whole back into, like, this potato farm. I have no idea why. I just love growing potatoes. It's so satisfying. So if you need potatoes, you can come to the Botsmans. This, there is a, kind of a segue into my next question, which is my final in the kind of like getting to know our guest sort of uh, section. And it's about a curious 10 year old. So let's say that this is not a curious 10 year old who's one of your children. It might be someone in the town of Oxford who maybe thinks you are actually a, a potato farmer. But if they walk up to you and they ask you, what do you do for work? How do you answer? Oh, um, so not my children. Um, no. I would say. For work, I try to make things that help people think differently. And then they might say, so is that like a physical object? Is this like a think different object? <laughs> they probably would. Um, I would say, well, uh, well, what I make can really depend on what I'm trying to do. So I do a lot of drawings and I write articles and I design courses and um, so the medium really depends on the type of learning experience. I think you might have captured their attention at the drawings and then the rest might have sounded like homework. So I think this curious 10-year-old has, <laughs> has now walked off into the streets of Oxford. I think, yeah, maybe I would have just told them I'm a cartoonist. They might, might have had more interest. <laughs> so... I can't recall the exact moment that I first came across your work, but the story that I tell myself is that I've recalled seeing you speak at a couple of events. I feel like maybe there was one when I lived in Australia. Um, I definitely remember seeing you at a HR conference in Europe because I remember doing the phone trust exercise with a stranger and uh, very much freaking out because I was single at the time. And I'm like, if this person goes into my dating apps, uh, <laughs> this is going to get awkward. And then we also had the chance to have you on the Culture Amp stage at Culture First this year. And I bring up this kind of preamble story about like, you know, how I've been exposed to your work because, you know, as I navigated my own way through my career, I've always tried to stay on top of the trends that were impacting business and technology. And I think I always saw you as someone who was up on stage helping to bring clarity and stories to life around some of those ideas around things like digital transformation, the sharing economy and the currency of trust. And I'm really excited to be speaking to you today specifically um, about trust. And mm -hmm. as we get started into, I guess, some of the questions and as we set the foundation for this conversation, I have heard you talk about a process that you go through when you're writing a speech and that you write a feeling that you want the audience to feel during your talk. So if we were, if the audience was to see us writing down a word on top of our run of show document for this podcast episode, what do you think that word would be? 
I'm not sure if it's a feeling, but a, a curiosity comes to mind. I'd mm-hmm. like them to feel like we are curious together and I'm not just going over old ground and they are curious in what we are saying and talking about. All right. Well, for everyone listening right now, you know, let's get curious. Let's rethink some of our assumptions about trust in the workplace. So I think for us to do that, um, you know, I think it's really important to set a foundation for the conversation. And if I was to look at maybe, I guess, five, like a couple of words and and then some ideas that I think it would be important for the audience to know, these are the five that come up. So trust, humility, ego, trust leaps and climbing the trust stack. So for the audience, would you mind maybe just giving like a quick definition and of each and maybe we can start with trust? Yeah, um, and I should say some are easier than others for me. Um, so trust, I do have a, a very simple definition. Uh, trust is a confident relationship with the unknown. Stop me if you want to go deeper into the definitions, but that definition of trust is is quite different from how other people define it. Um, other definitions of trust tend to focus on sort of knowing the outcome or knowing what to expect of people. But trust actually is about being able to navigate uncertainty and not not, not know what someone is up to. So if you know how things are going to turn out or, you know, you have 100% certainty, although we never really have that, in in how someone's going to behave, very little trust is required. Um, So that's why my definition is a confident relationship with the unknown. Now, this is where my work is really going. So I'm really passionate about this relationship, but it's the relationship between trust and humility. Mm. Uh, One of the things that trust enables um, is when we have trust in ourselves and when there is trust in our cultures, there is psychological safety, um, it enables us to be confident in what we don't know. And that is actually my definition of humility. Humility is a confident relationship with what we don't know. The third one that I was thinking about was Ego. So if, if if I've got this understanding of trust, you know, being a confident relationship with the unknown, the unknown requires me to have humility, which is a confident relationship with what I don't know. But for me to have that humility, I feel like that's when ego steps in and ego's going to be like, I guess, maybe the thing that maybe stops me from sort of letting those two things coexist together. Exactly. So um, ego is what I describe as a pull. So, um, in order to have humility, you, ha- you have to be able to be comfortable in the unknown. You have to be able to um, make room for doubt. And we are not good at that. And the reason why we're not good at that um, is because of these pools. And one of the most powerful pools that pulls us back, back to the known, um, people, ideas, beliefs that feel safe, um, and familiar to us um, is ego because mm-hmm. ego is really worrying about what other people think of you um, and ego brings out 
the need to compete and the need to prove ourselves and the need to be right and the need to win and the need to dominate. And all those things are not great for humility. They're not great for sitting in this space um, of the unknown and discovering and exploring what you might find there. So yeah. ego is is completely, it's, it's, I call it a pool. Some people call it a gremlin or a blocker. But the reason why I like it, it's a pool is because you really have to become aware of how powerful this, this force is that takes you away from that place of being not just comfortable, but excited by not knowing. Yeah, there's, I think some of these things, when you just say like, you know, trust, humility, ego, people are like, oh yeah, I understand those concepts or like, I know they're important, but when you really get down to like the heart of relationships at work and like what makes up a company culture and, you know, I, like one of the things I, I say a lot of you know, is that we have spent years focusing on the what of the work. We now need to focus on the how of the work and the mm. how is all about humility and ego and trust and how these things play out and admitting to someone that you're like, not only do I not know, but like, maybe I was wrong. Like maybe I, I trusted myself with something and I was wrong. And like, I, that unknown is something that I'm willing to like talk about. And I, you know, and I think depending on the level of psychological safety in the team, depending on people's own experience with trust, uh, you know, ego can play a huge part and it can kind of, I think like sort of, I guess, deafen our own ability to, you know, trust others because maybe we don't even have the own trust in ourselves to admit some of those things. Yeah. No, it's, um, I often say that if you understand and can visualize this relationship between trust, humility, and ego, so trust enables you to sort of practice and be in a space of humility and, and ego is the thing that gets in the way. Um, you will observe team meetings, conversations, the way individuals behave, the way leaders behave. You suddenly see it through a whole new lens. Um, right. You know, you can just, even if someone's very self-aware, these things come up all the time. Which I guess maybe the next thing to kind of, uh, you know, if we've got those definitions of trust, humility, and ego, the next piece is, I guess, actually like, you know, these trust leaps and climbing the trust stack. And I, I think these are really great visuals that you've kind of been able to put out there so that, that people can understand why this is hard for people at times. So how do you speak about the, those two terms? Yeah, I'm glad you can visualize it because I always, I, I think in words and images and if, if I can't see the visual around it, I know the words aren't quite there. So um, a trust leap is um, whenever you're asking someone to take a risk to do something new or to behave in a different way. Um, so trust leaps can be in products and things. So asking someone to take the COVID-19 is a trust leap for many people. Um, mm -hmm. They can be in systems um, and ideas. They can be in new technologies, but they can also be in people changes as well. Mm -hmm. um, and trust leaps uh really depend on uh, people's comfort in going from something is that is known to them um, and being able to move someone into the unknown. And many new ideas fell from 
brilliant product inventions to cultural change programs because people underestimate how high and fast they're asking people to leap. And so the people who are being asked to make that leap, they often get stuck in what I call this sea of uncertainty. Um, And that's where many ideas fail, where organizations um, don't move forward. forward. And I think that uncertainty can be hard for a a lot of people because another another guest we've had on on the Culture First podcast is uh, Professor Susan David. Mm. And, you know, she's mentioned that, you know, like uncertainty is the cost of entry to like a meaningful life and that like we need to be okay with some of these things and take those trust leaps because uh, I know (laughs) I've had a confident relationship with trying to make sure everything's certain in my life and it's (laughs) something that I have had to unlearn and it's certainly taken time based on who I am and like, you know, how I'm wired. So um, a lot of the work that you've done, you know, providing language I think is really important as well as visuals to help learn about this. Um, so hopefully that gives everyone a, like a foundation to sort of build upon it and, and some visuals. And now I wanted to kind of, I guess, showcase some of the ways that trust plays out at both at an organizational level and an individual level. So I might start at the organizational level and, you know, so, um, I guess from afar, you know, awards and recognition can make organizations appear to be more trustworthy. So, you know, for example, CultureAmp is a certified B Corporation. Mm-hmm. So that might make us like a more trustworthy tech company than others. But then on the other hand, organizations can also submit themselves in for awards. They can pay for awards. They can create new sets of language to talk about how they're positioned, even though nothing might have changed inside of the company. So given all of that complexity, that, uh, you know, that impacts how we perceive an organization, how do you think we should go um, like, how do you think we should measure our own level of trust for an institution? God, it's such a big question. Um, you know, and awards and labels and certification, um, they are what we call trust signals, right? So they're, they're clues um, that people would use to decide whether you're trustworthy or not. And I'm not dismissing the importance of these, but these really fall what I call into sort of institutional signals that um, we see in the research are losing relevance with many people. Um, In Mm. fact, in some environments and contexts, um, these signals and associations can actually undermine um, trust or perceived trustworthiness. Um, I, I don't know if the question you're trying to get at is, internally so internally if you work in that organization or you're a leader in that organization how do you really know whether you're trustworthy and have a trustworthy culture or is the question about whether customers trust you yeah well i think as individuals we can be both like a potential you know employee of a company that we're trying to work out should we trust them as well as like a potential customer as well and i think um, it was really fa- like fascinating that you said that some of these trust signals at an institutional level are maybe losing relevance mm. and that these things are, you know, I think maybe whether it's a more um, informed, you know, potential hire or a more informed customer. So do you think something else is maybe replacing those sort of more institutional uh, trust signals? 
Totally, totally. Um, and I think they are particularly losing relevance for the employee relationship. And and I asked the mm. question because I think for a long time, companies have, have fixated over the customer um, organization, customer company relationship, because they know that sort of costs them money and not focused enough on whether their own employees perceive them to be trustworthy. Um, so what we see, and this is really tied to this whole emerging area of employee activism, which I think we're just beginning to understand what that means, where a company's employees um, don't just sort of want to know what their company stands for, so their company's purpose, but they want to know what their company stands against. Um, right. And when they don't understand that or where they don't, they have higher standards than maybe their company's own standards, um, they will rise up and make their voices heard. Um, and so I think trust in an employee's trust in an organization has become incredibly complicated because it's not top-down and hierarchical and linear. It's not even something that is really um, controlled or shaped just by leadership anymore. Um, it really is is embedded a lot more in, in social proof. Um, mm -hmm. So what other people and peers and teams also think of that organization and that can be a force that works for the organization or as we've seen, you know, Amazon and Google and many other companies recently, how much that can work against an organization as well. I love that you brought up uh, employee activism. It's something um, I've had uh, DeRay McKesson on this podcast before and speaking about, you know, activism both as, you know, members of society but also the role of um, an activist company, an activist CEO, an activist employees. And I guess the complexity around, you know, um, I think in the past companies maybe would have written down what they stood for. I think we're getting to a stage where maybe companies are more willing to put out publicly what they also stand against. But the words and the language maybe used to hold a bit more credence, but now people are really looking for the actions. You know, what do you actually uh, are doing a, a, about mm. these topics, not just what is the lip service that you're paying to them. And, you know, employees, are, I think, have a lot more power inside of organizations through things like employee resource groups and like actually creating containers for these conversations where they're holding companies to a higher account. So um, I feel like, yeah, well, certainly the, the trust signals are changing, but I think they're changing in a, in, a, in a good way into something that's a lot more representative of the experience that we're having inside of these organizations or with them as potential consumers. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the other thing that is, is shifting is that um, when employees may have seen sort of untrustworthy behavior, um, they may have raised it internally, right? And then maybe there was some leadership communications addressing that. But that's just not enough. It's it's actually using that voice and that activism to hold their organizations to account. And that may make many leaders extremely uncomfortable. Um, right. But I think that's, that's only going to get more and more amplified. Um, and then also not feeling like, you know, the conversation has to stay inside, um, but realizing 
and so it's it's a very interesting dynamic when an employee makes public the wrongdoing inside of a company. When you actually right. stop to think about that, that is a huge shift in trust and power dynamics that we really haven't seen before. Even just like when you hear the term like, you know, employee whistleblower, it used to be something that was more union focused or it was to do with a, you know, maybe a certain type of industry where someone was trying to, you know, expose unsafe practices or something to do with that. But I think what, you know, with the rise of employee activism, it's not just about, you know, you're trying to voice something to, to a union to get, you know, like better better rights or a safer working condition. It's really about the human experience we're having inside of the workplace and uh, voicing some of those things. And I think we're seeing a huge rise in companies who are feeling like their, tr- uh, their trust has been breached, willing to voice that. And I think, you know, with that obviously comes, um, maybe to kind of segue into this, is to actually get to that level of like, you know, wanting to voice your opinion and like actually having a, a deeper conversation about trust. You know, the word that comes up a lot is vulnerability and whether we're willing to be vulnerable. And I touch on this because I want to get into the specifics about it and actually showcase how that looks. But before we do, you know, um, one of the things that I've uh, mentioned to you and your team in the past is around Coltramp's values because it touches mm-hmm. on both of these words. You know, we have one of our values and it's our first value, which is have the courage to be vulnerable. And, you know, it's first for a reason. And then our third value is trust others to own decisions. So, you know, based on some of the work that you've done and the writing that you've done, you've said that vulnerability precedes trust. So it sounds like we've got our values in the right order, but like, why is, why is getting it in the right order so important? Yeah, I should say it doesn't always precede trust. It can follow, um, particularly if people don't feel safe or they're in what we call sort of a low trust state. So um, you have to have, you can't have zero trust or even what we call low trust, which is like complete apathy or no information. Um, to mm-hmm. ask people to be vulnerable in those situations is is an extreme stretch. So you've got some baseline level of trust. And then um, I think Dan Cole's work on this is brilliant. So he describes this uh, idea that is really visual called a vulnerability loop. And so the way it works and, and the way it's rocket fuel for trust is say, Damon, you send me a vulnerability signal. Um, so you actually did this at the start of the podcast, right? Telling me um, something personal. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if I don't catch it and sort of respect the signal and then in some way signal back, that leaves you really exposed and that will damage trust. But if right. I send a signal back, we go in this loop. Um, and it really accelerates trust, particularly early on um, in relationships. So uh, I always think it's interesting, like people you work with, when you, it can take, and for some people it can take a few weeks or even a few months, uh, when you see that first vulnerability loop. And as uh, a leader of a team, um, sometimes you could keep putting vulnerability signals out there and and the other team person doesn't pick that up. But the first time you see that loop really in action and you see other people starting to pick up on that loop, it's really powerful. As I said, in in other situations, you need a lot of trust for vulnerability to happen. 
Um, and that can be where people have had a very bad experience in the past um, from their childhood. There's something that has happened in their family, um, but also in the workplace where right. um, someone has breached their trust in a big way. Now, asking that person to be to be vulnerable before trust is there um, is a it's more than a stretch. It, it's actually not respecting where that person is and what that person needs. I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm thinking of, you know, I've spent my career in and around the HR space and in like in a lot of learning and development roles and thinking about like gathering people together in conversation. And I'm like picturing back training sessions that I've been in where, you know, people have been asked to like all be vulnerable at the same time and like share something and like where there, there, was, there wasn't that loop, like they weren't receiving anything back. They were sort of just being asked to step into that. And I think, you know, I'm seeing topics like PTSD of previous workplaces now being spoken about a lot, like mental health in the workplace. And that when we're asking people to kind of like start with vulnerability, like there has to be that, like that, I guess that base of psychological safety and whether it's something that was breached from a previous workplace, whether it was something that's happened in their personal life. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of call that out because I think it's it's so important. And then the other thing is like, and, you know, the vulnerability loop is a really powerful, I think, uh, term. And, and again, you know, I, I'm always thinking about the power of language and branding and how to like turn these things into actions inside of the workplace. So, you know, for people listening, like when you, when someone is vulnerable with you, like how you receive it and what you do is so critical. And like, like you said, like I shared something personal about like how trust was breached uh, for me, you know, from a stranger when I was young and like how that's played out in, you know, decades later. And it's something that I still, still work with. And if you receive that in a different way, like maybe I would have felt uncomfortable in this whole conversation. So I'm um, like, I appreciate you kind of calling that out and that like catching that vulnerability is so critical. Otherwise, you know, that person might not feel safe enough to be able to do so again. That even worse, that person will retreat. Um, right. that, that like imagine head down cowering, um, uh, and backing away. So, um, that's, I, th- I, th- you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Brené Brown's work. Um, but I think I do worry about vulnerability and also empathy, um, sort of being overexposed or being misunderstood and mistreated. Um, mm-hmm. because it is incredibly fragile and it is asking people, in some way to emotionally expose themselves. All right, let's take a quick pause here as the voiceover version of Damon interrupts. I wanted to jump back in and do a quick recap of what we've heard so far from Rachel. First, Rachel and I invited you to be curious and rethink what you know about trust in the workplace and how you think it works. To do that, we started by focusing on the relationship between trust, humility, and ego. We then introduced this concept of trust leaps and how vulnerability impacts them. When it comes to vulnerability, Rachel urged all of us to think about the importance of the vulnerability loop and acknowledge when someone is vulnerable with us in the workplace. This acknowledgement is key to building high trust teams and high levels of psychological safety. So now that we've had a masterclass on the foundations of trust in the workplace, it's time to talk about four ubiquitous phrases that you hear at work and why we need to rethink them. 
I'd like to go a little bit deeper on sort of four things to rethink in the workplace that you've shared, you know, with, with the Culture First audience and go a little bit um, deeper on them and sort of explain them to the audience here listening on the podcast. So mm-hmm. the, four, the four that you shared with our audience was we need to build more trust. We need to be more transparent. I have a good gut feeling about them and I'm 100% sure about this. Now, I feel like I've said all these things probably like 100 times this year, let alone in my you know entire career. So why do we need to rethink these ones? Should we start with we need to build more trust? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I still use the build word. It still, it still crops up. But, um, you know, as we talked about, language is very revealing. And, and when people talk about building more trust, there's a few issues with it that we need to sort of challenge. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing is the idea of building means you think you are in control of this mysterious trust process. Um, and in any situation, um, there is a trust giver and there is a trust receiver. And it's the trust giver that decides whether to give you their trust and your role is to earn it. So um, when we talk about building trust, uh, we're assuming that we are in control of that dynamic, but the giver is actually the one with the power. Um, The second thing around the building word is because I find that it encourages a type of thinking where people see trust like other, I hate this word, but strategic assets, right? So things like loyalty and brand awareness, which are easier to measure, um, but trust uh, is not like a, a bank or a reservoir. Um, it's I, I think of it more like energy. So it's right. continually flowing and changing form. And then the last thing why building more needs rethinking is um, more trust isn't always the goal. Um you know, Anora and Neil talks brilliantly about this. You don't want more trust in untrustworthy people. Um, what you want to help people do is is to really place their trust in their leaders and the organizations and the products and the services that really deserve it. So there's so much wrapped up in those two words of, of build more that I think we need to change and rethink. Yeah, and I love that reframe that you know trust is earned, not built, because like language is, is is a signal, and I think that's why I've spent most of my career in between like like marketing and HR, and like bringing those two worlds together because I actually feel like a lot of the the practices and the policies and the behaviors that we try to get across, you know, from a a people profession needs to be really tight on the branding and and, and the language and how we want that to actually play out because when we ask of these things you know if you work at a 30,000 person organization like getting that language is critical because like that then flows out into like hundreds of thousands of micro behaviors so um yeah trust is earned not built and for anyone you know who who is a culture amp customer i think it'd be really interesting to go back after listening to this episode and like look at the questions you're asking about trust but also like search in the comments and like tag the ones around trust and whether it's talking about building trust or earning trust so <laughs> that's a little a little side note for anyone there but um 
So the second one is we need to be more transparent. I uh, tweeted about this recently and I got a few people message me back saying, oh my God, thank God we're talking about this. Like transparency does not always equal more trust. So why is this something that we always keep talking about the need to be more transparent and why do we need to reframe it? <laughs> I, I don't know. And I feel like I've been on my own on this one for quite a few years. So um, it's something I got wrong uh, which is 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 maybe why I feel so passionate about helping people understand why we've drunk the Kool Aid on this one. Um, mm. Because you know, I spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs and regulators and compliance teams and HR that were all talking about transparency as as the way to sort of increase trust. Um, I, I mean, I even wrote about it in my book, um, and then I just was like studying examples of transparency in the workplace um so things like open calendars um teams that really had to disclose information were forced to disclose information not out of choice but out of compliance like micromanagement where people had sort of lots of meetings lots of cc'd on emails high visibility in what they were doing all the time and i you know i'd say to to leaders, right, these are your transparency efforts. Um, how are they making people feel? Because I don't see a whole lot of trust. No. And even at a more macro level, I, you know, regulators imposing on particularly tech companies, but also pharma, financial services, these transparency policies that really didn't seem to be doing anything for trust. And then I started to go back and go, right, well, if you think about the definition of trust, my definition being a confident relationship with the unknown, well, then you see why transparency doesn't lead to more trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk about this idea that if you if you need to be things to be transparent, you're actually in a very low trust state. Um, and I think this idea of I don't want to say dangerous because there are applications of transparency that are incredibly beneficial but I think we need to be thinking about transparency as a tool it's definitely not a cultural value um in my opinion um and it we don't I don't think we want to live in organizations and workplaces that are transparent and it makes people uncomfortable but you ask people the line between transparency and surveillance and they'll, they'll say, no, 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 those things are different. And you're like, well, where is the line? Right. Um, and so then you say, well, let's, let's think of something the government is, government is doing that is asking you to be transparent about something. So like, you know, when test and trace was actually going to trap people's movements. Hmm. Our organization would never do anything like that. Well, well, Amazon, you know, time off task. It's not so far the app that has that sort of tracks where everyone is and what they're doing. Yeah. And so I think this is a really big issue that companies think transparency will either fix trust issues or that it will create trustworthy cultures because it's just not true. I have a feeling there's going to be some potentially some um, heads of uh, people on this uh, listening to this podcast right now who are like looking at their values and seeing the word transparency there in in big bold letters and going, what are we doing? And like, 
seeing it yeah more as a like you know something that you can use when the like the moment is right where it calls for transparency with a very clear intent on why you're sharing the information and like what we're supposed to be doing with it as opposed to just like transparency everywhere which you know like noise and signal and like mm-hmm. what are what are what should employees be focusing on right now considering how stretched thin we all are so i think this is a big one. So for everyone listening out there and who's got transparency in their values, um, send me a message afterwards. We can ha- have a conversation about this. Um, all right. So we'll keep pairing through them. So the third one <laughs> is I have a good gut feeling about them. So for th- this one, like f- for anyone who's ever been a recruiter or on the hiring team, I have a feeling we've all ever ever felt this ourselves or, or said it out loud. So why do we need to reframe this one? You know, I have to say, Damon, as as you went on to this one, my little ego pull came up where I was like, <laughs> your listeners are not going to like me because. <laughs> That's right? OK. Like, we're going to we're going to sit in that un- un- uncertainty for a bit. Right. Like this is not taking them back to where they know. So um, but I'll keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's another really tricky one. Um, I and I, I, I want to say up front, I, I believe in intuition. Um, I believe gut feelings are often there to uh, protect you and they can be a really powerful signal. But I worry, um, particularly when you are making a decision about a person, um, say in a hiring context or in a performance review or a promotion, uh, when I hear leaders say, oh, I have a good gut feeling about them, like, well, I think you need to change your recruiting process because, um, you know, gut feeling is, is sort of, is pattern recognition, right? You're recognizing things that are familiar to you and it's sending you a signal. And there are, um, areas where we can really rely on our intuition, where we've seen the pattern thousands of times. Um, and there's probably only, one or two areas of in your life where you've got that kind of expertise and you've had the kind of feedback to know that you were right. But what your intuition is often doing um, in situations like hiring is it's looking for signals that it's familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. It's looking for things that you want to believe are true. So right. you start to see how dangerous this is in terms of overcoming biases that we know are important to address in terms of diversity and inclusion. So I think this this link between, and Danny Kahneman, of course, is the guru on this, but this, this link between gut feeling, making a decision, how that decision might be biased, and the problems that creates in terms of diversity and inclusion I don't think we've looked or talked enough about that um, within organizational cultures. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, especially when, you know, the other thing that people might be, you know, being pushed on is, you know, speed and time to hire. And like, you know, I know depending on the type of company, you know, you might get a, uh, a chance to open up a new role and you need to fill it quickly. Otherwise, the budget decision might go somewhere else. And then we start going back to some of these, you know, shortcuts that we have, which is, oh, I have a good feeling about them or like I trust my gut or like I just feel like they're going to, you know, you know, culturally fit as opposed to culturally add. But 
I guess you speak about trust signals that people should be looking for as opposed to like the gut feelings that we're getting and about capability and character. And why I love you calling out those two things is it goes back to what I said earlier around focusing on the how of the work, not what mm-hmm. they've done. Totally. And I think, um, you know, I think about bad trust decisions I've made and it, it's because I haven't had, I just haven't got enough information about that person or that situation. And, um, the information that we often don't ask enough questions around or to your point, slow down and really think about is are these questions around intentions and motives. Mm-hmm. So you, most people listening have had this experience where they hire someone and they turn out to be a bad hire, not because they're not capable, but because their motives, what they want from the job and what they want from the organization are completely different from what the organization wants and what the role requires. And when you have that kind of alignment and friction there, it's it's really hard to make that culturally work. So, yeah, for everyone listening, uh, think about uh, if you're reducing your time to hire down to something that feels a little bit like, wow, that's maybe too quick, then think about maybe some of the ways that uh, gut, you know, gut feeling is maybe impacting some of the decisions around hiring. Now, the last one, this is definitely something I've said before. I'm 100% sure about this. You could not change my mind, even though I would say I'm a deeply curious person. So why do we need to reframe this and think again back to that word of humility being a strength? Um, this is a biggie, and I think it's sort of one of, um, how would I describe it, one of the shifts we're actually seeing people realise the importance of um sort of coming, I don't even know if we're through the pandemic, whatever, um, whatever place we're in. Um, so there is a myth out there around capability and confidence. So the idea that for people to trust a leader, they must demonstrate full confidence in their capabilities and in their knowledge um, and in their skills. And um, the admission that they don't know something or they don't have the answer yet um, is perceived as a weakness. And you see this everywhere, right? So you see the pressure on economists to give forecasts when financial markets are uncertain. You see the pressure on politicians to give clear and firm answers about when the pandemic will end, when it's impossible to know that yet. Um, I even see it in, to be honest, my own children who are seven and nine, who are being encouraged to have very strong opinions on things like privacy rights and transgender that are really too complex still to understand. And the ability in society and culture that is so wired to value confidence and conviction and certainty means that humility is taken a beating. And Mm -hmm. it's very easy to say, but how we create cultures where people say, not even I don't know, but I'm not sure would be a good first step. I don't know. Or, you know what, I got that completely wrong. And what do I learn from that? Um, you know, you think of what that will change in terms of the curiosity, the openness, the courage, vulnerability, everything that can inject 
into organizations. And so I think it's it's one of the most important shifts that we need to make happen. And just to share actually something, I um, have learned over the last few weeks that has made me rethink capability. And I thought it's really interesting. I haven't actually shared this with anyone yet, but um, you know, I always thought of capability as a hard trait, skills, knowledge, things that we sort of build up. But if you go to the root meaning of the word capability, it comes from capex, which in Latin means space Hmm. or to hold much. So capability isn't actually about the skills that we fill our resumes with. It's the ability to be able to hold a space, to be able to sit in that unknown. And I had had never thought of capability in that way. So, um, yeah, this is, I think, a, a really interesting area that is emerging in terms of how does it become okay for anyone in an organization to say they're not sure, they don't know, or they don't know yet, mm. and for that to be perceived as a strength, not a weakness? I speak so often about holding space and about like that, you know, I'm trying to create containers for conversations. And uh, so like that um, uh, little insight on capability is something that I will definitely spend some more time thinking about. But I think when you were sharing some of that, I know for me personally, like, I guess when I struggle to say, I don't know, I was wrong, I'm not sure. For me, it's like my career has operated in like lots of like strange spaces where I was either like the first to do a certain role or like there was an emerging technology that I like try to like like teach people about or even in my role as a work culture evangelist like it's a very made-up title and I do very like a, a very broad range of work and it's not easy to kind of like hire for someone like me or I don't fit into a box so when I don't fit into a box where like my capabilities I guess are you know uniformly recognized for me to say like I guess like sometimes my ego plays in like people don't know like enough about like like how I work or what what makes my role you know tick that for mm. me to say that I don't know what I'm doing is just like massive imposter syndrome coming back of like, you already like play on the edge in this field, talking about workplace culture and marketing and stuff. So I think that's what's always stopped me is like my imposter syndrome just like flies out the door when I have to say some of those things. Yeah. But, you know, I think there's actually a distinction between um, I don't know what I'm doing, which is tied to action. Right. right. Like the, when you say that to me, like you're already in action, you're, you're taking action around something. Whereas I don't know the answer to something is, is actually about not doing something. Right. It's actually saying, yeah. you know, if I take action on this, I, I'm not sure it's the right kind of action. So I think there's a difference there. I know it sounds subtle, but I think there is a difference. Between, I don't know what I'm doing, which means you're already in it versus, yeah. um, do you know what? I, I just need a bit more time and space to to actually reflect so I can come back to you with a better answer or with a better solution. So I think what some people uh, they think, oh, this is, you know, makes them feel really uncomfortable is I'm not saying you stay in this state of indecision and reflection and doubt forever. It's about holding that space for long enough so that when you do make a decision or where you do give an answer, you actually have more conviction and belief um, in your decision-making. 
we've just witnessed a reframe on my reframe, which is very <laughs> meta, very powerful. So next time, yes, I will I'll stop linking imposter syndrome and my capability to saying things like I don't know or I was wrong, I'm not sure. So that is, um, yes, a reframe on a reframe is very powerful. All right, so I feel like everyone's been learning a lot so far about, uh, you know, trust, humility, ego. We've reframed a, a bunch of terms and pieces of language that we're speaking about a lot in the workplace. So I wanted to now maybe change things up just with a, a few rapid fire questions as we kind of uh, pull this conversation towards the end. And um, so hopefully people can learn a little bit more about you and I guess like how you think about some of these things in the questions that you get. So are you down for uh, seven quick rapid fire questions? Sure. So when you feel most alive, what are you doing? Um, uh, I'm not rapid. Um, I am either, uh, in the garden with my hands in the mud, like digging or, um, in the hot sun swimming. Lovely. And what's, uh, what do you care, you know, about more than most people? Like what's something that's really that like every time you hear that subject, is just something that you're like, ah, oh, like that's just something I care about so much. Um, I don't know if it's a subject, but I think I <laughs> care a lot about language. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The way people use phrases, well-trodden phrases. Um, and I also have a very weird obsession over fonts. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Um <laughs> Uh, the language one, yes, I, I will join you on that train. Um, all right. So what do senior leaders struggle the most to rethink? Ooh. Um, oh, oh. Uh, the transparency is a big one, um, but I think it's deeper than that. Um, I think it is tied to the ego, where it helps and where it gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can certainly see that playing out. Um, so this one is what advice seems obviously right is relatively easy to follow and is usually ignored. What advice is right, easy to follow, but is usually, um, oh, it really stumped me on that one. Um, I think it's something to do with habits. I think there's, there's like, you know, really easy advice to follow on a habits and in terms of how you break bad habits that we all just ignore, whether it's around food, diet, exercise, working too hard, checking the phone, um, you know, base, you know, if you don't want to do something, then don't have it in your environment or around you, but yet right. we still have the biscuits in the cupboard and the phone by our side. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's an obvious one, but a hard one to follow through on. I completely agree. I think everyone's like, oh, I know how to like u- use my phone less and whatnot. And then like they still put it like right next to them. And I know when I uh, sat down with Esther Perel and, you know, sh- she kind of talks about like, what's the first thing you grab in the morning? Is it your partner <laughs> or your phone? Like, yeah. and th- that sh- shares a lot about how hard some of these habits are to break. Now, the final two, I know you're an avid reader. Uh, I know you have a lot of a lot of books, and you're you're sharing them a lot with um, your your community. So, I've got two questions about books. If you had to recommend one book for the national curriculum, what would it be? 
What? Come on. Can't <laughs> recommend one book for the curriculum. <laughs> well, it's one that everyone's going to have to read. So it's not the only book they're going to have to read, but you get to choose one book for the national curriculum. Um, okay. Um, I'd pick a book that would resonate across um, age groups and subjects. So I th- I think, oh, I think I'd pick, I actually um, shared it today. I think I'd pick Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Mm. Very interesting. And then what was your favorite book from the past 12 months? It doesn't have to be professional related. Just what was, um, you know, we've all spent a little bit more time sitting around reading, hopefully, and not, not just binging Netflix. But uh, what was your favorite book from the past 12 months? I have he- read some corkers, like brilliant books. So, um, oh, again, I loved Between Two Kingdoms, the memoir, and Educated, the memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this isn't one. And I also loved, loved American Dirt as a fiction book. Educated was, wow, <laughs> what a... What a journey that book was. I, uh, I'm someone who loves buying books, struggles to read them, but like that one, I really didn't put down. So that, that one, um, I definitely agree with. So, all right, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think it's also the first Culture First podcast where we've uh, had the word uh, corker uh, used, which I think is amazing. <laughs> so it's set a new bar for other people who join the podcast. But, you know, I, like I shared at the start, I've been following your work and have seen you speak over the years. And I think it's always been fascinating to see like what you're researching and how you're thinking about things and the impact it has on us both as a society, as an organization. So um, what is the next big subject for you? Like what's the thing that's taking your interest that you think you, you might like be spending the next few years thinking about or writing or researching about? Um, well, I'm, I'm working on it now. Um, I'm writing a book on um, how we can become more confident with uncertainty and the unknown. So um, I am still working on the core ideas, but um, trying to help people to understand this intersection between trust and humility and how for some people it is very innate, um, and they do have a natural gift for it. Um, and you see it in creative people and performers and comedians and entrepreneurs and even like incredible chefs. But for most of us, we have to learn it. Um, and it's turned much more, uh, don't want to say memoir than anything I've written before, but it is because what I've realized, like writing out my journey with this, is that um, I was a need to know person to the absolute extreme. Um, you know, I, I couldn't understand friends who enjoyed falling in love because I hated not knowing if someone was going <laughs> to call me back and I right. drop elaborate plans. And, and so I feel like I can write for the reader that this doesn't come easy for. So um, it's a huge shift for me to actually write from that place and to take these concepts that I've spent over 12 years trying to understand in, in and out and, and really give them a different purpose and role um, in people's lives. I have a feeling that is certainly a book that needs to be read both at a personal and professional level because, you know, I think for anyone who's listened to this episode 
they're going to probably be sitting there saying, okay, like I know that now I know I need to rethink some of these things. The, the practice is how do we like actually like make yeah. it real? Because I think we have these wirings in our brain or these behaviors that we need to unlearn that where we default to some of these, I guess, easier ways of operating. But I think sitting in this uncertainty, not letting the ego drive and like, you know, not letting gut decisions, you know, like th- these have massive impacts on people's lives, who we hire, how we work. And that's why I think workplace culture is such a fascinating topic because the how of the work impacts us at a deep level. So I'm sure that that yeah. work's going to be widely read. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of these insights with everyone on the Culture First podcast. It's a pleasure. As my husband said, the control freak is going to write about letting go. There is an irony there. <laughs> I feel like that should be the byline, right? Or maybe no, that can no, be no, one no. of the <laughs> recommendations on the back. It'd be like famous authors and then your husband writing that. <laughs> Totally, totally. Awesome. It's All been right. a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rachel. Take care. Bye bye. A big thank you to Rachel Botsman for joining me on the Culture First podcast. I feel incredibly grateful and uh, lucky that I get to sit down with people like Rachel. And, you know, as you would have heard in this episode, Rachel is someone whose work I've followed for a long time. I've seen her speak at many events and you know, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to sit down for an hour and explore all of the different topics that I think about when it comes to workplace culture and trust. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did being part of it. Now, as a bit of a summary for this episode, like I think the ability to rethink in the workplace is a critical skill. You know, there's the old saying, you know, what got us here is not going to get us there. And that comes down to rethinking. And one of the biggest things that we need to be rethinking is this idea of you know trust and vulnerability and what are some of the i guess maybe misconceptions when it comes to trust that we still hold now this is definitely a podcast episode that i think you should be sending to recruiters when it comes to some of the potential issues around you know gut feelings with candidates to people leaders or senior leaders who are trying to understand how should we be thinking about trust and what do our employees need to know about what we actually think about as an organization. You heard Rachel talk about this idea of not just what does an organization stand for, but what does it stand against and how do you actually communicate that to your employees to help increase trust. And then definitely, you know, for any individual employee who wants to understand how to potentially use vulnerability in a way that can be received by someone else and how to acknowledge that vulnerability. And, you know, the idea of transparency being not something that should be an organizational value, but actually something that is a little bit more of a, you know, a tool, something that you can use at certain times when it makes sense, but not something that should be used at all times because that can just overload employees with too much information and potentially decrease trust, which is probably not what you were thinking about when it comes to transparency. So there's a lot to rethink in this episode, which is why I was, you know, felt so privileged to be able to sit down with Rachel to discuss it. At the end of the episode, we actually got a sneak peek into what's next for Rachel. And I personally can't wait to hear her new work, which is all about becoming more confident with our relationship with the unknown. I think we could all benefit from that right now. And, you know, as you probably heard in the episode, I like to try control as much of my environment as possible. And obviously, there's so much we can't control right now. So I think that's going to be really critical work for all of us, both personally and professionally. If you've made it to this part of the episode, I just want to say a big thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture First podcast. If you've enjoyed it, it would really mean the world to me and the team 
if you subscribed and also left a review. That's how more people find these episodes and it really helps us. So if you want to find previous episodes of the CultureAmp uh, podcast, you can. You can head to cultureamp.com slash podcast to find all of the different episodes. You would have heard uh, Rachel and I talk about my episodes with people like Esther Perel and Doray McKesson. So head to cultureamp.com slash podcast where you can find those. I've been your host, Damon Klotz. The Culture First podcast is brought to you by CultureAmp. You can learn more about how CultureAmp can transform your organization and build a competitive advantage by putting your culture first by heading to cultureamp.com. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, have a great day.